Good morning. Today is Thursday, May 14, 2020. Today is the 35th day of the Omer. So I taught this subject that I want to share with you 30 years ago. And I taught it as a theoretical dilemma. And finally, yesterday, the day before, I learned about an actual case where this is happening. And uh, so I'm quite excited to, to share this with you. Um, so the question is like this. After World War II, a number of leading Nazi doctors were brought to trial for war crimes and crimes against humanity for, um, in quotation marks, scientific experiments that they did that were uh, sadistic and uh, they tortured people in concentration camps for, in quotation marks, scientific purposes. And the question is, is it ever appropriate to use data collected in such a horrific and horrible manner in order to uh, have a uh, source of data that could potentially help people? So let me give you a couple of examples of, of what the issues are. Uh, one of the main examples has to do with experiments about people who are freezing. So uh, the Nazis, the Germans in general, wanted to be able to learn about the effects of hypothermia and what happens, especially if uh, um, uh, a fighter pilot uh, is ejected into the water, frigid water, um, how long could he survive? Um, what kind of protective suit might be most helpful in allowing him to stay survive, to, uh, allowing him to survive? And of course, um, uh, what is the body's response to uh, um, these cold temperatures? And of course, there's no way to ethically uh, do scientific experiments, but of course, the Nazis had unethical ways. And Dr. Sigmund Rauscher, or Rascher, um, did experiments in Dachau and Auschwitz and horrible, I, I don't even want to describe, but putting uh, inmates, mostly Jews, into freezing water. And many of them died and it was horribly uh, painful, but to gather data about the rate of the cooling and how to bring it back and et cetera. Okay. In the 1980s and 90s, Dr. Robert Pozos was the director of the Hypothermia Laboratory at University of Minnesota School of Medicine. And he was a leading researcher expert on the subject of hypothermia and how to be able to uh, treat it. So, you know, a person, God forbid, fell into a lake or a river and they're brought to the emergency room. So what do you do? One of the questions is, how do you warm the person up? And there was, at the time, a dispute over what is the best way to uh, treat a person who comes into the emergency room with hypothermia. And making a mistake could lead to death. So you really want to be able to get it right. And the problem is there's no data because there is no legitimate way to do scientific studies about this. But And, and therefore, he had to... Um, extrapolate from other information, but at a certain point, he was able to obtain the results 
of the scientific, in quotation marks, scientific studies done by Rabbi, by Dr. Um, Rausch, Rauscher. And he was going to publish an article in the New England Journal of Medicine that presented those findings from Dr. Rauscher in order to propose how to be able to treat hypothermia patients today. And the article was rejected. It was vetoed. The editor at that time was Dr. Arnold Relman. Relman said, this comes from a source that is abhorrent and uh, we cannot allow um, uh, a medical paper based on Nazi data to come into New England Journal of Medicine. Of course, the question to be asked is, but what if there is actually patients, there are patients whose lives could be saved as a result of that? Okay, another example where it actually did happen, uh, Dr. John Hayward, at about the same time, was biology professor at the Victoria University in Vancouver, Canada. And he used Rasher's data in order to be able to determine if, God forbid, fishermen in frigid waters off Canada would uh, capsize, how long would search and rescue teams have to get to them, how long should those teams look for them, and there too, threat to life. And he says as follows, I don't want to have to use the Nazi data, but there is no other, and there will be no other in an ethical world. I've rationalized it a bit, but not to use it would be equally bad. I'm trying to make something constructive out of it. I use it with my guard up, but it's useful. Okay, one more example. In 1989, the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency of the United States government, was considering regulations on a toxic gas called phosgene or phosgene. Phosgene is a toxic gas that's used to manufacture pesticides and plastic, and it was also used as a toxic chemical in chemical warfare in the Iran-Iraq war. So what the EPA wanted to do is studies to determine how much of this chemical would be lethal in order to protect people living around these factories uh, that produce it, and also in order to protect American soldiers during the Iran-Iraq war who may have been subject to this biological attack. And so he was, the, the EPA wanted to establish these standards and to do this research literally to save lives. Of course, Phosgene was a gas that was used to kill people in concentration camps. And the Nazis had done studies on this gas, phosgene gas, in order to determine how much of an exposure was okay, how much does it take to kill people. And of course, many people uh, suffered and died as a result. So uh, the question from a Jewish point of view is as follows. Uh, yes, of course. Um, in general, the highest priority is saving lives, but we do know there are certain priorities that come even ahead of saving lives. For example, not committing murder, not committing adultery, not committing idolatry. Those are three cardinal sins that we're not allowed to do even at risk of 
life. So would we make the same argument to say that maybe um, to, to utilize uh, data from people, mainly Jews who were tortured in the Holocaust, uh, maybe that's not data that is worthwhile uh, to use, uh, even though that means that other people's lives will be lost as a result of that. Dr. Henry Beecher was a professor at the Harvard Medical School, and he said that this type of data should not be used, and he compared it to the inadmissibility of evidence that was obtained in violation of constitutional principles. So, for example, you have somebody on trial and the only evidence about them was gained by, let's say, an illicit wiretap or an illicit search. And in the U.S., the Supreme Court has certainly held many times that it is considered fruit of the forbidden tree. If the evidence was gained in an illegal, unconstitutional manner, the evidence cannot be used, even though that means that someone who we know committed this crime is going to go free, but it is better for the overall system not to allow evidence to be gathered in an unconstitutional manner. And he said, concerning this type of scientific data, this loss meaning those people who Nebuch would pass away because they would not be saved as a result of this data, this loss, it seems, would be less important than the far-reaching moral loss to medicine if the data were to be published. Interestingly, Rabbi J. David Bleich, writing from the point of view of halacha, of Jewish law, gives a halachic analysis that's relatively intuitive from a halakhic point of view, and that is that there is no such principle in Jewish law. Um, obviously, we would never condone wrongdoing or unethical behavior, and obviously there is a realm of ethics that could inform this decision, but purely on the basis of sources of Jewish law, there is no principle in Jewish law that says that if you have the ability to help someone, just because it came through some illicit means, you're not allowed to help someone. The principle of sakanat nefashot, being able to set aside every other prohibition in order to save lives would still control this behavior and the data should be used. Okay, I shared that 30 years ago. I don't think anybody on this call heard that at that time, but here we are 30 years later and an actual case was revealed. So this is from an article in New York Times uh, a couple of days ago. In June 2002, during the Second Intifada, a 13-year-old Israeli boy, Dvir Musai, was coming back from an outing, and Nebuch, he stepped on a, ma a mine, a land mine, that had been laid by Palestinian terrorists, and he was very seriously wounded. And the pain and suffering was not able to be healed or even lessened over decades. He was in agony. His foot felt like it was on fire. There was no pain medicine. There was no procedure. There was nothing that could be done to alleviate the absolute horror of what he 
continue to live through on a day-to-day -day basis. <clears throat> Until recently, when he met a doctor named Dr. Madi El Haj. Dr. Madi El Haj is an Arab, Muslim, Israeli from the northern part of Israel, and he is a surgeon that does very advanced surgery on nerves. And he finally, just recently, met this patient, Devir, and he told them, he told him and his mother that I can do a surgery. It's very advanced, it's very complicated, it's very difficult, but what needs to happen is, uh, because it's a relatively new field of doing surgery on nerve endings to be able to alleviate this kind of intractable and untreatable pain. But he said, the best way for me to do this surgery is to use a book on anatomy. And the book that I need to use was written by a Nazi doctor and the anatomical drawings were done based on dissected victims of the Holocaust. And what is incredible is that with all of the, we're now talking 2016, 2017, 2018, with all the technology and all the imaging and all the uh, everything, everything, this book remains the most precise, helpful tool to do this kind of a surgery. And the irony is, as this kind of new surgery is done more, that book becomes more and more important. Nothing has equaled it. So he said, you know, I can do the surgery without the book, but I have a better chance of a good outcome if I use the book. And he explained this to the patient and his family. And uh, the patient and his family agreed. Now, let me talk to you just a little bit about the book. So this was done by, uh, the book was originally done by um, Dr. Edward Pernkoff. And I told you where he got the, uh, uh, started the drawings. It was first published in English in 1963. However, in the 1980s, scholars started to raise questions about the origin of this. Obviously, when he published it in 1963, he didn't say, oh, well, this is a book that uh, uh, comes from drawings that I did when I was dissecting Holocaust victims in, 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 in World War II. So, but by the 1980s, uh, questions were raised about where these drawings had originally come from, and it created quite a controversy because this book had become classic and standard for treatment of nerve issues. In fact, in 
2017. So this is, again, very recent. There was a symposium of experts convened by Yad Vashem in order to discuss the issue of using this book the, for, for surgeons to be able to use this book. And they convened a group of experts and they uh, included among them Dr. Rabbi Joseph Pollack. You may know who that is. I have the privilege to know Rabbi Pollack and I actually worked with him for many years. For many, many years, he has been the uh, head of Hillel at Boston University and an amazing, wonderful man. And he himself uh, was a is a uh, survivor of the Holocaust as a child. He's written about that. But they came up with what they called the Vienna Protocol, which was a way to use the book, but with full disclosure about its origins. In any event, the irony of this is that Dvir, who as a boy had suffered this horrible attack that ruined his life um, with pain and suffering, grew up as a young Israeli with a hatred of Arabs as a result of what happened to him. And his mother was a woman whose family perished in the Holocaust. So it's quite ironic uh, Dvir said about this, it sounds like a good joke. Muslim surgeon with a Nazi atlas operating on a Jew. But the truth is that Dvir and his family did consult with halakhic guidance. And the halakhic guidance is clear cut that once he knows about it and it is transparent, it is permissible to use that if it would improve the odds uh, of this surgery, and the surgery was done, and it was successful, and Devere has his life back. So it's an amazing story that demonstrates the human element of all sides of this ethical debate, but also the bottom line in terms of the halacha that, um, at least under certain circumstances, this can be used if it is to preserve life and to save life. So that is something that happened uh, in Israel recently, and it's a fascinating application of this principle. My friends, I want to wish you a great, happy, and safe day.